are, we're looking in Philippians, uh, we've been looking at Philippians the past week and the coming weeks, and so we're looking at Philippians chapter 2 today, as we are in a series called The Kingdom of God in the City of Man. Our reading is from Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Joe Fisher, would you read Philippians 2 for us? A reading from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being in the same mind, having the same love, being in full, of co- full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or consent, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not in his own interest, but also in the interest of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So where are we? Where are we right now in this cultural moment on November the 8th, 2020? You know, I think we're coming into the midst of a week where we have voted for a president and other positions where different uh, newscasts have come out with things. And, and basically, we've heard that president-elect is now Joe Biden. Um, that'll be probably contested in court. I'm not sure what's going to happen next. One of the things that I have reflected on is the challenge of how we bring about healing and reconciliation in this world, and, and especially in America, and especially as the church. I recently heard people that I know are friends with other people declaring out loud, I don't think I can be friends with her, with him anymore. I don't think I can be friends with them because they're voting for or they voted for. And I thought, they, they can't really mean that. They've known this person for 10 years, 20 years. They're friends with this person. But we have a challenge because... We've gotten to a point in our political world, world where we see presidents as ultimate rather than as penultimate. We are talking about living in the kingdom of God, dwelling in the kingdom of God, even while we live in the city of man. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking to the church about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. And in seasons of trial in particular, he calls the church to unity, to harmony, to oneness, and not to go alone. And he calls them to therefore be agents of reconciliation and healing and transformation. And there's one main uh, term or phrase that undergirds the entirety of Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and and how we accomplish the, the kingdom purposes of being unified and bringing about healing and reconciliation. And that term is humility. The, the, it's the main kingdom mindset that is missing in the city of man, not just in America today, but always. And yet it's the main attitude that Christ not only calls us to, but demonstrates on the cross. 
Philippians chapter 2 calls us very explicitly to uh, humility and other-centeredness. Let me reread verses 3 through 4 to hear Paul's call to us to the ch- as the church. He writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so in a sense, he's defining humility right here. He says, humility is when you count others as more significant than yourselves. When you think of their interests, what, how they would benefit from something more than you do yourself. And of course, it's the opposite of how we enter every room, go about every day. But there's something in that, that walking into a space and, and having that hum- humble mindset is to really count others as more significant than myself. And when I look at the polarization in our country, whether that is political or socio- socioeconomic or religious or whatever it is, that polarization is primarily about a self-concern for my interests first, the opposite of humility. And when I'm thinking about my interests first, I automatically see others as an asset or a threat. Either they're going to benefit me, they're on my side, or they are a threat to my interests. And that's where we are right now. In a country and as a people, we are polarized where my interests are first, whether that's a political view that I hold or uh, where I am in my life, my stage of life, having kids, not having kids, and everyone else that doesn't agree or isn't on my side is therefore a threat. Paul says, I want you to have humility, to think of others first, to look to their interests and not just your own. And then he goes on to explain it. He says, this is what you should do. You should have the mind among you with one another, have the mind, the mindset, the attitude, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Your mindset, your attitude should be the mindset, the attitude of of Christ Jesus, which is yours in Christ. And then he goes on to describe Christ's humility, and and really it's Christ's humiliation. In verses 7 and 8, we read, Jesus Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Think about those powerful words describing Christ. He emptied himself. He became a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death. You know, I think on on some very basic level, we can think about that in terms of even just the ability to say, I'm not good at something and letting somebody else do it. And, you know, in a good marriage, you see this happening where maybe people go into a marriage and they have this idea of what the different roles are. But in a, in a pretty healthy, very normal sort of marriage, they might realize, actually, let's not go by stereotypical roles. Maybe you come into it and say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to take care of the paying the, the bills um, and, and I'm supposed to take care of cooking. And you can quickly realize, actually, he's really good at cooking or she's really good at doing the money. Let's not go back to some roles that I saw my parents or grandparents do. Let's have the humility to say, I don't need to do this to hold up my manhood or to be the perfect wife. To recognize even just that is a very subtle but simple way of of humbly giving up a position that you think you need to have. 
But most of us struggle with that on grander levels. We get to positions of influence or power of any sort, and we think of the good we can do in it. And what we don't think of is, how in this position of power can I empty myself? Can I serve others? Am I willing to die for others? Christ Jesus was God Almighty, God in God, God eternal. All position, power, authority was his. And for the good of us, he emptied himself. For the good of somebody other than his own good, he humbled himself. We get this very explicitly in the verse that precedes what I just read in verse 6. It says that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Basically, that's this. Jesus is God. God eternal, God in glory and power. And he did not consider his power, position, eternal authority as something to be used for his own advantage. And as Christ enters humanity, walking around as Jesus the Nazarene, he does not use his divinity for his own advantage. That's essentially what Satan was trying to get him to do in the desert, was tempting him to use his power for his own advantage to exploit his power for his own good. Like, hey, don't you want to do good things? Think about all the good you could do as, as the Savior. Use your power to show that you're the Savior. But he doesn't do that. He obeys the Father for the good of others, submitting himself and constraining his power. He never uses his power for his own good. When he's on the cross, he has the power to come down. He has the power to vanquish, to eliminate the very people that are crucifying him. And he restrains his power out of good for those who are crucifying him. That's what gospel humility is. That's what love is, according to the gospel. It is never using your power, your influence, your position, your gifting, your authority for your own advantage. It's always disadvantaging yourself for others. The Christian view of power, the Christian view of power is this. You do not use power for your own advantage. Christ did not. And that's why the cross that Paul uses in verse eight is the example. The cross is the example that we give all to God and for others. That's what Jesus does. He gives all to, in obedience to God for the good of others. So the cross is the example of humble and selfless love. And it's not just the example, it's also the power to do it. Because the gospel tells us that, that in Christ on the cross, we were reconciled to the Father, freed from our own sinfulness, and empowered by the Spirit dwelling in us to live out that life of emptiness, servanthood, humility, and love that we're not able to do on our own. Because here's the deal. It's impossible to be selfless and humble. It just is. It's, it's, it's not natural to us. When you think about it, any culture that you've ever lived in, and including ours today, its priorities and, and its aims are very different than the kingdom of God. The prior, priorities and aims of the city of man, which is kind of any culture that's ever existed, is power and control. That's what people are after and always have been, power and control, or in some cultures, status and honor, and in every culture, it's wealth. 
Every culture at all times has sought power and control, status and honor and wealth. Modern America has built its aim and goal on achievement and success. We build our identity and our self-worth, our self-esteem. We build our ego on our performance. We try to find something we're good at or be good looking or be athletic or be, be smart enough or, or, or successful enough or have kids who are just right and a marriage that everyone wants to look at. It's a performance-based identity where we try to achieve success and status and power by getting something that we have proven that we can do. And it's the opposite of the kingdom of God. In verse three, Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So that's the mindset, the goal of the kingdom of God. It's not power control, success st status. It's do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit or conceit. You know, that word conceit, it's an interesting word. It's actually a, a Greek cognate of two separate words, one of which means empty and the other of which is glory. So think about that. Conceit is a Greek term that was very common that means empty glory. Now we've talked about glory. Glory is the description of who God is. Glory is something that lasts or matters. To say you want glory is not just to say, I want to be recognized. It's to say that I want to matter. I want to have, I want to be something. And it literally comes from the idea of weightiness. And we've talked about that as, as well. Something that moves other things. So we want glory because we want to matter. We want to be weighty. We want to move other things but we build our weightiness by ourselves on our reputation, our success, our influence. And as a result, we're always comparing. We're always comparing ourselves because all, all of our weightiness is relative. You might be a good athlete until somebody else walks in the room that is more athletic. You might be a good singer until somebody else comes in who is more musical. We're always comparing, always trying to measure up always trying to see where we stand in relation to others because we're building our sense of self, our glory on our own measurements on how people view us. In the book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis talks about how pride is basically a constant comparison. He writes this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Paul is saying our glory that we seek is empty. It's weightless. It's like, you know, uh, some of you guys received um, trophies when you were a kid playing sports. My first year playing football, I was seven. I was on an ankle biter team. That basically means everybody was like 55 to 60 pounds. And my Vienna Raiders team went three and four. Three wins, four losses. We weren't very good. But we went to a bowl game. We went to the Copper Bowl where we faced this Fairfax team. 
Now we lost, but we got, we finished second, so we got a trophy. So I have a, a trophy that says when I was seven, I finished second in the Copper Bowl. Now, every team in Fairfax County went to a bowl game. And as a result of being a first and second place trophy in that bowl, every team got a trophy. And every player on the team, not just the best player, got a trophy. So there I am walking around with my second place Copper Bowl trophy from 1982. Now, what if I spent my whole life showing that off? Saying, hey, look at my trophy. Look, I finished second in the Copper Bowl in 1982. Let alone, never mind that everybody on the team and everybody in the county who played football that year got it. And I was seven at the time. And we weren't very good, and neither was I. That's essentially what Paul is saying with what we build our lives on. We go around saying, look at how many degrees I have. Or look at my great family and marriage. Or, man, I've got a lot invested. And we build ourselves up on our intelligence or our skills or our achievements. And it's like walking around with a second place you know, participation trophy and trying to hold that up as if this is what shows that I'm worth something. We take ourselves far too seriously. Pride is something the Bible talks about often as the opposite of humility, obviously. But there's a couple of terms that Paul uses when he's talking about it. And one of the ones he uses, which he doesn't use here, basically means something that is overinflated, distended and swollen like a balloon that's been puffed up too much. And basically the idea of pride in that sense is that our ego is constantly blown up with air. It's filled with nothing, nothing weighty at least, and it can even be swollen and painful. And as a result, we are always fragile. You know, why is it that we're so easily offended and hurt? Or we can get guarded and defensive or vindictive and angry, or kind of crushed and hurt and hiding from people. It's because everyone is a threat to our ego. When your life is built on something puffed up and not filled up, your, your sense of worth is built on your achievements and your success, your, your second place Copper Bowl trophy life. It, you have a sense of self that isn't worth anything. And so everyone is a threat to it. It's constantly fragile. And it's the root of division and polarization and viciousness in our society. It's not, it's not political and cultural and socioeconomic differences. It is our overinflated sense of self. In other words, it's not difference of opinion that is at the root of division. It's self-centeredness and a self-centeredness built on something that isn't truly weighty. So what's the solution? Try to care less about success. Try to stop comparing. Try to be a better person. The answer is, of course, the gospel. In verse 1, Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and then he goes on to talk about the things we're called to do, which is to love one another in unity, to be humble and selfless. But it's built out of that first verse. If you have encouragement in Christ, comfort from his love for you, participation in the spirit that dwells in you. And he basically says, if you have Christ and you do, if you have the spirit of God dwelling in you and you do, if you are loved by God and you are, 
then live this way. Which is why a couple verses later in verse 5, when he says to them about having selflessness and humility, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And that in is pretty key because that in is not just have the same mind that Christ did, but have the mind that is yours because you are in Christ. All that God affords you through the gospel, through Christ's death and resurrection, out of that you are to live. And what is it that you have in Christ? What we have in Christ is somebody who wasn't trying to exalt himself with emptiness, but somebody who emptied himself and therefore was exalted. We read what he does in verses 6 through 11. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You know, Paul is saying, don't be conceited. Don't be trying to build your life on empty glory. And of course, the opposite is that Jesus, who had all glory, emptied himself. He emptied himself to the point of death on the cross. And so God exalted him to the place of highest glory, true glory, so that we who are willing to give up our empty glory schemes can share in his true and weighty glory. That's the gospel. To be in Christ is to live on this side of the gospel. And the gospel frees us. You don't have to be anxious about your status, trying to build up your identity, trying to gain esteem or need power to prove that you matter. You are filled up. You are rich in everything that matters. You know, I, uh, I coached t-ball years ago when my boys were little. And I loved coaching t-ball because the kids were little and I was much more powerful. I'm not very good at baseball, but with five-year-olds, I'm an amazing baseball player. And I like that position of being in a position where I didn't have to worry about whether they knew more about baseball than me or were better at it because I was just significantly better as, a, as, a, as an adult being fully grown and they were five. In a sense, Paul is saying, look, stop being anxious about whether the five-year-old is going to beat you in t-ball. You know, if, if you met Bill Gates, even those of you who have really big pocketbooks, I, I, I wonder if you would think Bill Gates should be anxious about how he measures up to you financially. The answer is no, of course not, right? He's one of the richest, if not the richest guys in the world. And my guess is he doesn't get anxious about how he measures up financially with you or me. Paul is saying, in Christ, you are infinitely wealthy, infinitely powerful. You have infinite glory. Stop trying to measure up and compare yourselves to one another. Live out of that identity, that status, that worth, that glory that is completely fixed and yours forever in Christ. 
so that you can be free to stop thinking about yourself. True humility is that. It is no longer thinking about yourself so much. In his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Tim Keller writes this, talking about gospel humility. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. It's not needing to connect things with myself. It is an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. It's the freedom of what he calls self-forgetfulness. And it's a freedom that comes when we dwell in Christ. So where are we? Where are you and I? Where are we? Where is the church? Where is Christ Church Vienna? as the kingdom of God in the city of man, in this post-election America. One thing I would say is I think the American church needs to reevaluate its relationship to power in general. And, you know, I think there can be a lot of anxiety. The American church is actually losing position and power that it had held when more people identified with the church. And you know what, in the coming years, it may lose more. And I think that's okay. And I think the calling of the church is that where we do have power and influence is to not grasp it for our own good, to not use or exploit power for our own good and our own protection, but to always use it for our other, for others, including our enemies, including people who don't like the church, to use any positions of power and influence to care for, protect, and love others. The kingdom of God, we as the church need to remember, is built on the cross and not on thrones. But what about us as a church, Christ Church Vienna? What about you and me? What about you? Here are a couple things I think that we are called to out of this passage and in this moment to have a transforming effect. It is first to be humble. It's humility. Selflessly consider others more important than yourself. And that means this, even when you believe the right thing and are doing the right thing, to still have no superiority to those who don't believe what you do and don't live like you. The gospel calls us to humility because your standing and status is not based on what you do. You're a sinner saved by grace. So there's no place for superiority, no place for trying to measure yourself against others, but instead it, to humbly selflessly consider others better than yourself, as Paul says. Secondly, out of this passage, I would say, I think there's a call to be externally focused people, to be friends, actually friends with people who don't agree with you, whose perspectives or faith or politics are not the same as yours. I think in humility, we live into an ability to love and be friends with people who disagree with us. You know, Jesus included people who completely disagreed with each other in his discipleship group. The tax collectors were those who upheld the Roman authorities and the zealots were those who wanted to murderously overthrow them. So you had people who were anarchists who wanted to overthrow the government and you had those who were Benedict Arnold's Arnold's upholding the powers of Rome, both of them are included as part of Jesus' 12. 
That's amazing. Can you imagine a church where you had both political sides at the extremes in there? Jesus, band of 12, did. And I think that calls us to those sorts of relationships, to build relationships with people who strongly disagree with us for the sake of God's kingdom purposes in this world. And that ultimately means we need to be people who listen a lot. You know, there's an African proverb that I heard recently by David Bailey that says, from a distance, I saw somebody, but I thought it was a monster. As he got closer, I realized it was a human. When I finally saw his face, I realized it was a friend of mine. And when I got close enough to have a conversation, I realized it was my brother. We need to spend enough time listening to learn to love, to love those who you might think are wrong. Because you and I, who have done wrong, are loved. And lastly, to have no fear. To have no fear. To be fearless people. You know, Christ died, but Christ is risen and exalted. He is the highly exalted one. And one day, every knee, every knee, every knee, every knee, every nation, every king, Every one of us will bow before Jesus Christ. And so I think we can see the loss of power in whatever way you perceive that. Loss of power and influence in your life, in any realm within America, not with hand-wringing, but as a time of stripping and humbling, of being called to live out of the grace and love of the cross. Our only hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning, as we reflect on the glory of the risen and exalted Jesus and await his coming again, give us that peace that says that we are in Christ. In Christ, we are loved. In Christ, we have all things. In Christ, we have weightiness. So that we can humble ourselves, give up our empty glory paths, and love others more than ourselves. Amen.